You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I dropped an amazing episode with Dom Grimao of The Last Felony, Ion Dissonance, and Cryptopsy. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! All right, welcome to the second episode of Future Friday with me, Tom May. Uh, this episode features none other than Roger Harvey. Roger Harvey is a singer-songwriter based in Philadelphia. He's one of my best friends, and he is also an earthbound conduit of synchronicity and all that makes this life beautiful, which makes me ecstatic to announce that Roger and I will be playing together at Manchester Punk Festival in the UK next year on April 20th. That's uh, 420. Coincidence unintended, but very much uh, uh, welcomed. Head over to the YouTube channel and you can watch a special video of Roger teaching us how to mix a giant pre-made batch cocktail of Manhattans that we then uh, drank at a friend's surprise party the night after recording this. It's uh, a lot of fun. I'm trying to learn how to make some videos and use uh, that software and equipment, so if anybody has any advice, I'd uh, greatly appreciate it. One more note, another dear friend and songwriter, Laura Stevenson, has released two songs to benefit Safe Horizon. Safe Horizon is the largest nonprofit victim services agency in the United States and has been serving victims in New York City since 1978. You can find her online at Laura Stevenson and check them out. Roger, my friend, thank you so much for uh, joining me on the second episode of the podcast. Thank you for having me, Tommy. Oh, fuck yeah. I think I do got to throw out a full disclosure. We just recorded (laughs) and give me a little slack. It is the second episode ever. I didn't record it. Sure, which makes my... Thank you, Tommy. And your beginning <laughs> seemed very strange. Yeah, but a little bit different. Uh, but it's not disingenuous, I promise. But yeah, here with Roger, uh, not only one of my favorite songwriters, but one of my best friends in the world. Uh, I really enjoy your company. We've had ourselves quite a week. We went out for coffee a bunch of times, and uh, we, you really helped me out. I've been in a rut songwriting, and uh, your approach to it, and just talking about it, and talking about some other artists really kind of put me over the edge. I really like uh, what you talked about going on a trip and kind of like breaking yourself out of these um, walls that we build directly around us and get stuck in our our, our routine or the different uh, relationships and kind of things that we're attached to at home and being able to go somewhere else to get shaken into a a creative space all in and of itself. That's, that's, uh, it's definitely one, one thing you can try. (laughs) (laughs) I, uh, I don't know. I always just find that, um, there's something about a change of scenery that makes, kind of just breaks you out of everything, you know? It's uh, it's something that I always I always kind of go to. I I was just out in in Joshua Tree with a dear friend of mine, and we were actually filming a music video. Um, that's the announcement of it. <laughs> <laughs> that's all oh, i'm yeah. gonna say about it but uh it was a it was a great adventure it was very last minute we decided we wanted to do it and that we could do it together because we had the time and i think i told you this but like when i landed it was like right when 
we kind of got together. I don't know at what point, whether it was like when I when I landed or whenever we got out to the desert. When I like really realized that subconsciously, I think I really needed that trip. Like I needed to just kind of break the monotony of being comfortable here and feeling all that kind of first part of winter. You know, sinking into that. Yeah. Especially going to the desert, which is such a um, foreign environment for people who grew up in the Northeast or grew up in other parts of the country, for sure. It's like uh, one that, you know, we talked about before is become an Instagram aesthetic. You know, it's like what uh, some kind of like Urban Outfitters kind of place would use to sell jeans or whatever. It's like a, um, a, a very nostalgic kind of place inherently. And it, but when you go there, it really is crazy to be there and see horizon to horizon, complete sky full of... Uh, stars the air is a little bit thin it's uh it's it's a, a little bit dangerous like you you know you're by the road or you're by a car or something but you could get stuck out in the desert and be completely fucked you know it's sure. like a really it's a really interesting mars like kind of place it's definitely not uh or much different than you know those those pictures on the internet or or the things that they glorify about it i was, I was yeah. thinking like every time i'm out there i or I guess at least especially, I mean, this time, um, watching the sun come up over the desert, which means that we had to, we woke up around like four in the morning to make sure that we could see that at the right time and, and get that at the right time. And watching that and just being out there and the desolation of all of it, it was just struck by this, like, I remember saying to, to my friend, I said, I'm pretty sure this is the most beautiful place in America. It's a pretty bold statement because yeah. um, there's a lot of beauty in America. But, yeah, I don't know. At, at least at that moment, I was – it really is such a special place and so unlike um, anywhere else. Totally. It's almost a bit of the inverse of what we would consider super beautiful here. Like it would be in the springtime or the summer where you're driving – up through the mountains of Pennsylvania, and there's vegetation everywhere, and mm-hmm. there's like a little. I mean, there's civilization everywhere too. I mean, in northern Pennsylvania, uh, you can go, or like North Central, you can go to a place, uh, Cherry Springs State Park, that has the lowest amount of light pollution uh, east of the Mississippi. Yeah, I've heard of this place. Yeah, it's really cool. There's no highways that go through it, and it's really fucking bizarre. But that would be desolate. But besides that, what we're used to thinking of beautiful would be like a garden or some kind of thing. And I think the desert's complete definitely green. Absence. Yeah, definitely green. It would be green at a baseline. Uh, but the desert itself, that absence of, of life, um, is just on another level of jarring you out of, um, what you think of the, the earth is. I think the, the unfamiliar nature, nature of it too, is like, I don't know, it, it kind of lends to us, uh, for people, people that grew up where we grew up or in a lot of other places where that is unfamiliar. Um, it kind of lends to this kind of curiosity about the landscape it, it makes you look at the whole thing differently yeah totally totally and it's uh back on how harsh it is it's like um you know people die there <laughs> there's always like stories of that yeah someone left and they're out in the desert and you can die of exposure in 2018 there was a uh, a radio a couple a series of radio lab episodes that came out earlier this year or last year i think it was with the sanctuary city episodes or it was not long after that where they talked about a professor from the southwest somewhere went out and was doing some kind of anthropological work, and they student found a body of a, of a someone uh, of someone from uh, Mexico or Central America trying to cross the United States, who was just dead. So this guy went on this trip to try to figure out well, this like uh, not this figurative trip to try to figure out who this uh, this body belonged to, 
and I believe they eventually solved it. But in that the in the course of searching for it, I don't want to give out a number because I'm gonna butcher it. But there was like the number of people that died trying to cross the border uh, of exposure and of just the harshness of the earth is fucking crazy. It's mm-hmm. astronomical. It's like it, it's such a huge number of people, and it's uh, uh, something that is pretty far detached from our lives where we live and the and the situation that we're in. And it's pretty pretty fucking fucked up. It's it's absolutely tragic. Yeah, and I know it's that like you that- uh, talked about that theme on your newest record, uh, the U.S. Mexico border. It was kind of like um, um, perf- uh, uh, a very apparent. Yeah, it's funny because a lot of people. I mean, the title track Two Coyotes" is specifically about losing someone that you love to uh, something that you can't control, and specifically the U.S.-Mexico border. Uh, but it's funny that you say that because a lot of people kind of miss that point, um, which is one of the complicated and beautiful parts of song. But yeah, something that I read a lot about and and think a lot about, and it's it's somehow uh, from the time that I wrote the song, and then the time that I recorded uh, recorded the song and released the song, like all those different eras, it, it's always been a really tragic, from my understanding, a very tragic uh, situation down there. I think the first time that I really was like privy to it was uh, on tour. First time I went down through the, close to the border, down through the American Southwest was when I was 14 years old, I think. The first time I went out to California on tour and um, yeah, just getting stopped by the border police and kind of being a young person trying to figure out what was going on down here and then learning to understand the world more. A song called Deportee by Woody Guthrie that was written a very long time ago that basically touches on the exact problem that we're dealing with today and that it has, uh, I don't know, from, I think it's always been very bad, but somehow it's gotten even worse um, with everything that has come out recently about what's happening at the border. and. Yeah, it seems like in my lifetime uh, it's never been more of a galvanizing political tool to try to use people's fears uh, and bring out the worst that humanity has to offer to get votes, yeah. to crew power. It's uh, an extremely while, unfortunate and bizarre While thing. people are suffering at the expense of that. Yeah, it's really, really fucking crazy. Because, I mean, it's a, you know, I'm no economist. I'm not a sociologist. I just have a baseline opinion based off of what I would believe to be right and wrong. And it just, I don't think that letting someone die in the middle of the sand or spending a huge amount of resources in order to build a symbolic wall would serve any type of good for anyone anywhere ever. It just, uh, it's really fucking crazy. It's really bizarre. Uh, and now that we've started on a really light note, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> can you, uh, you mentioned that the first time that you went down by the border was when you were 14 uh, and you have some incredible stories about touring when you were an early teenager and some of the funniest things that I've heard while you were out there with like the, the code. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember, I think Mark or you, Mark from the code told me a story about how they used to say that they just found you. Oh and yeah. They'd be like, oh yeah, we just found him. And people would be like, well, you can't, you can't take a 13 year old kid or a 12 year old kid just on the road with you. you we know? were so fucked up. We'd, 
I don't know. We lived in a van, though. And I was an actual child. So You're it's an, like. An actual child. Can you imagine that? Have you talked to a 12 year old recently? <laughs> uh, not about being on the road. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah. It's just, it's hard to relate. Yeah. Yeah. I can't imagine what it would be like to be on the road as a 12 year old. It's I mean, super fun. Yeah. I it bet. Was definitely, it was definitely. Uh, one way I grown up. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Able to do, uh, I guess, what you... It was like a 12-year-old dream, probably. To an extent, you get to see so many things, do whatever you want. Yeah, I grew up in a, in such a small town that it, it kind of was like... I didn't have many friends. Um, really, any friends. started skateboarding. So I'd skateboard around by myself. I don't even know how I got into it. Um probably something I saw on the TV or something, but, uh, yeah, I fell in with some older, older kids who were playing, had a band at the time and that ended up being those, those guys. And so we hung out all the time and then they started going on the road and we, and I went out with them. It's amazing. They were one of the first bands that, uh, ever punk bands ever came through Scranton when I was a lot younger. And I remember they stayed at our friend Dave Sandy's house, and they tagged his wall and all this stuff, and we thought it was it was like the coolest thing ever <laughs> I had ever seen in my life. These dudes from the code came, and they stayed in his bedroom, and they just drew on his wall. It was like uh, my friend Dave Sandy. Yeah, so uh, just just imagine like a like a young child being like <laughs> in that crew. <laughs> so sad. <laughs> and yet so like I don't know fucked up kind of yeah, you know yeah. you can't really. After touring all these years and, and thinking about the situations that you get into outside of any type of debauchery, just like the weird-ass situations you get into with the police and with uh, any type of number of people who live on the road, I can imagine it wouldn't be a very uh, safe place for you. Mark Mark took care of me, and yeah. uh, my mom really trusted him, and my family was going through their own shit at the time, so I think it was actually kind of a relief when I was like... Even though I didn't always tell him that I was going, <laughs> um, it was kind of like, uh, I don't know, it was better for me. And, and definitely, I don't know where I would be if it wasn't for meeting those folks. I mean, I definitely wouldn't be here. So Hell yeah. They're a wonderful group of people. I love them. It's awesome. The um, one thing about you that I wanted to bring up besides all of your great experiences touring and uh, songwriting and the way we look at the world is that you have been one of the people in my life that is a what I would call a conduit for synchronicities, a uh, person who has these strange coincidences and draws them from wherever it just kind of happens. And, and uh, I think it's really funny. I can't like put you on the spot to just think of any coincidences off the bat, but there's just so many hilarious stories where you're like, run into people that it just it just shouldn't happen like uh and it's it's pretty wild and i was one of them that came to my mind when i was thinking about it was how you got the uh call to audition to be um oh fuck uh in vinyl uh the hbl series lou reed yeah you, you, know, you tell that story give me a little wait line. that didn't that doesn't happen to everybody no it does not happen to everybody <laughs> No, they don't just, uh, that just doesn't fall in everybody's lap. That was a pretty interesting thing. Um, well, at the time, the show was going to be called Rock and Roll. And I was on the road with Against Me over in Europe, and we were out for five or six weeks. It was, it was a pretty long run, and about maybe a week or a week and a half into it, uh, we get this email that says, 
someone from the show who was familiar with my music and apparently knew what I looked like thought that I would make a, a good Lou Reed. Um, I can see it. I can see the swagger, you know, or the gate, whatever, whatever's there. Yeah, well, that makes one of us. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I had like shorter hair at the time, so I had, like, and I have kind of curly hair. It's a lot, so I don't know. Um, but I have absolutely no acting experience. So when I got this, I was like, my initial reaction was like, hell no, like what? What? I was just like, this is so bizarre that they would even ask me to do this because I was like, I have no training. I don't know how to act. I've never done anything. Like, I didn't even experiment with that when I was, like, a kid. Like, no theater for you? Yeah, no. like, and my youngest sister is actually um, in acting school in NYU right now. So cool. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't get that part. Um, but, which is also maybe complicated because music is entertainment in a similar kind of way. But I, I just, uh, yeah, so I... I get this email and I thought about it for like a week and I told everyone I was on tour with and some people on the tour were like, you got to do it. And other people, well, actually, everybody was like, you got to do it. (laughs) Um, But that was mostly because just people thought it was really cool that something that they were really familiar with, HBO. Can you imagine the party that we would have had if the episode came on and you played Lou Reed and you're just standing in the shadows smoking a cigarette with like a a half limp wrist, kind of just like... That actually cool was, oh, shit, I, I have the whole, they sent me the whole scene and everything. That's how it's like written down? Yeah, yeah. Oh, hell yeah. I, I, I vaguely remember it because we watched that uh, series. It was I, I really liked it. It was awesome. Yeah. I think they canceled it after the, the first season. I want to say that one of the things was he was eating like chicken wow. or something. But I could be making that completely up. Yeah. But uh, so I thought about it for a lot longer than you should think about something <laughs> without responding if it's something that you actually want to do. But it wasn't really something that I did want to do. But then one night I was sitting there and everyone was telling me, why wouldn't you do it? You have nothing to lose. Just like send the send an audition tape in. People were like, we'll film it for you. And um, <laughs> cool. Um, Sorry, I just checked to make sure that it was recording. <laughs> <laughs> just a little anxiety from last bit. time. Yeah. Uh, and I thought about my grandma, and I was like, man, if I was on TV, my grandma would be so happy. <laughs> and then I was like, fuck that. I can't do that. That's crazy. <laughs> I'm not going through I'm like, I love my grandma, but I'm not going through all that bullshit. Right. And then the last night of tour... So now we're talking like weeks have passed. I meet someone named John Cameron Mitchell, who I believe wrote Hedwig and also performed as Hedwig. Um, so cool. Yeah, so cool. Where where you where you meet him? At? In Barcelona. And yeah, at, of course. Where else? I mean, where else would you? <laughs> yeah. And uh, at the end, we were like standing out back of the venue. Me, Laura, from against me. And John Cameron Mitchell, and we're all smoking a joint. Hope he doesn't mind me saying that because definitely did mention that not a huge pot smoker. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, and then we get to talking, and then we start talking about how I got this email about this thing, and John Cameron Mitchell goes, "Oh my God, you have to do it." And I was like, well, you know, I was, I was thinking about my grandma and like how maybe I should like try. And he was like, no, I'm playing Andy Warhol in the show. 
And so then it was like potentially like we would be like doing like scenes together and stuff. And I was like, well, he's cool. So (laughs) that would be like a little more comfortable. Anyway, uh, and he ends up sending me an email. But that's just so outrageous. Like how in the world would you end up getting that audition and then running into the person that you'd be playing opposite? Wait, that doesn't happen to everybody? That doesn't? Sorry. This might uh, be a little bit of a shock to you. It's not a thing that happens to everybody else. And so so then uh, John Cameron Mitchell sends me this email. It's fairly in detail and just says, this is what you have to do for your audition tape. And this is someone that has, like, a lot of experience doing this. And I was, like, very... um, I just thought it was so cool that, you know would take the time to do something like that for me. And like, we had a good time hanging out very That's briefly. So cool. Um, and so then I was like, now I got to do it for my grandma and for John Cameron Mitchell. <laughs> and so I got back to, I got back home and I filmed a audition tape and I sent it in. And now like, you know, it's been another week and, uh, we never heard back. Yeah, well, I also I guess that's the perfect ending to it. Yeah, sorry, Grandma. Sorry, sorry, Roger's Grandma. Uh, I don't I, want her to hear this. I don't want her to hear that story because I want her to think that like. Well, don't you think she'd be happy to know that you were thinking about her? I mean. Oh yeah, always. Yeah, be stoked. Uh, that noise is the uh, we have an automatic cat feeder that's going off right now, <laughs> which is a jarbled recording of Beth Ann's voice going, "JJ, it's time to eat," but there's something that got fucked up on the inside of it, so now it goes. Are you fucking with me right now? No, I'm not. You can hear it. I'll turn it up. I hear it, but oh, and I didn't, and it just spilled the food all out over the floor because I didn't uh, (laughs) put the tray underneath. Yeah, well, Uh, but uh, I can't. We can't. These are the days of our lives. This is this is what it's become, and I like I like it. Yeah, I wouldn't. I don't think I'd trade it. Uh, I can't talk about your grandma not mention one of my favorite sayings ever that. You texted me recently, or to a group text that you're great. You said, "Oh yeah, she always ever, <laughs> she always likes to, she's full of them." I sometimes call my grandma just to hear hear the stories. She's she's sharp and she's still telling stories. And I hope that by the time I get to her age, I'm in the same boat. And uh, but she always says she always leaves me with this piece of advice that she loves to give, which is, "If you can't be good, be careful." It's perfect. I love it so much. It reminds me of like a uh, country song chorus or something or something that uh, profound that Johnny Cash would say in passing. Yeah, because uh, it, it does kind of create the thing where it's like my grandma's telling me like, I know you're not going to be good. Yeah. But so you better fucking be careful. Exactly. That's the least you can do. That's your that's now your priority. That's yeah. your the, the line to toe. It's so fucking good. You are, uh, I'm not, I don't know much about country music. It's something that I had an aversion to because it wasn't supposed to be cool when I was younger. Um, a lot of the country that I hear on the radio still doesn't, isn't cool to me. I don't, I'm not a big fan. But uh, over the last couple of years, you've exposed me to so much cool country music. And I've noticed how it is such a perfect blending of, uh, of like a rock and roll attitude with a, uh, folk storytelling and it's very accessible and there's like huge to me profound philosophical ideas a lot of the songs and it's like written in a way that i could understand it and i don't have to research like i don't have to really think too hard about it oftentimes you can there just seems to be layers to a lot of stuff but uh yeah i want to thank you for that and uh show an appreciation that you are been like a 
a real kind of gatekeeper for me with that. That's fucking awesome. It I helps love, me so much with writing. Like, I love I love to share country music. I love to share everything, but it's kind of funny because sometimes I feel like I mean I love I'm a I'm a country music fan. I I love primarily listen to country music, um, but I sometimes feel like I'm not entitled to that right for some reason. I don't know if it's like how you know, but I do love to. So even like sharing it, sometimes I'm like, oh, they're gonna think I'm fucking anyone who's like, like, grew up with this shit, like really grew up with it is gonna be like, oh, you're fucking. Yeah, I actually gonna take back that I called you a gatekeeper because I think that gatekeeper can can have a negative connotation in that respect, in that it's like, I mean, the punks are worse than anybody with it, you know? Oh, you're not punk, fucking poser. That's what uh, a a friend of mine uh, from college when. Uh, so I don't know if I should talk about this, but well, it's a little controversial, but fuck it. Yeah, um, I, the uh, if you really hate it later, we could just delete it. Yeah. Well, so when Fat Mike came out and he said oh, dumb shit. what he said in uh, Las Vegas. Yeah, yeah. Which if, if you no one heard, he said something akin to like, uh, "Thank God it was wasn't punk people that yeah. got shot, or, the, or, it, or was it was just the country fans." Country. Yeah, something like that. And. I felt personally attacked, and I was like, fuck that. I know that's, like, his thing, you know, um, but that's not my thing. Uh, and I just posted this little thing online. I was like, I, I forget what I said, but a friend of mine, old friend of mine commented, and he said, the only people more close-minded than country fans, punk rockers. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, it's You're so right. fucking true. Totally. <laughs> And the older I get, the more I kind of realize that, too. I mean, I've uh, uh, been a punk rocker my entire life, and I'm sure always will be, and always associated with my identity is wrapped up in it, and always has. I As well Mark, I. We bring him up again, Mark Code. The day after we got robbed in Manchester, put, like, a sticker on our stuff, and we showed up to a show with Anti-Flag that said, like, punk rock ruined my life, and it was, like, a funny joke, because it has many times saved my life, but definitely ruined it. But, yeah, totally, like... The punk world, the older that I get, the more I see how much of that stuff is people projecting their extreme insecurities of uh, how punk are you and how much uh, of this uh, kind of arbitrary and abstract identity can you wrap yourself up in. And there's so much gatekeeping. Shit's fucking crazy. Yeah. Um, but I guess you get that anywhere with any kind of niche thing. But the uh, the country one is, uh, you know, I could imagine, especially with decades and it being so much more popular and so much... There's probably so many oh, yeah. obscure country musicians that are... Country music yeah. fans are very ter- territorial, territorial, just like just like anyone is when they feel a deep connection to something and they want it to be their own. Yeah, for sure. They don't want anyone to take it away, and they also want to, you know, have take that sense of pride and their exclusivity of it. I get that. But it is a, it's a beautiful thing for me because I'm so... I've been so detached from it, so every time I... There's so many... There's decades of new music for me to discover. It's fucking amazing every time you hear like uh, I like how there's country standards which is not really a thing that's in punk but it would have been cool if there was like uh, there's versions of songs that everybody just kind of does and shares and it's really awesome I think that the the over like the best anchor that I got in exposure to country music was from you when you lent me uh, Willie Nelson's autobiography which I didn't know anything about Willie Nelson I didn't even know I knew all of his songs I didn't know he wrote them yeah yeah uh but reading that was such a, a huge change in me for how I approached l- life, I guess, uh, and also the music industry and country music in general. And it was, yeah, so cool. Yeah, I, I uh, so, well, Greg from The Bouncing Souls sent me that book. 
Yeah, when we were all over there on tour together. Yeah, we did a tour together. Uh, it was you, us, and Bouncing yeah, Souls. Yeah, what was it? 2016? No, no, 2014, I want to say. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. They just start blurring together. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. Who knows? I was going to make a passing comment about, I need to check my journal, but... Just because uh, we can't I... remember the date doesn't mean that it wasn't a good time. It, exactly. <laughs> uh, and so... Yeah, well, we, you know, I was like, I had my little, like, Bluetooth speaker, and I used to warm up in the back and change my strings and sing a little bit, and I would listen to a lot of music that I like, a lot of folk music, country music, stuff like that, and just kind of, there was one day in Berlin, which was the night I got my passport stolen. Ah, I remember Where, do you remember there was, like, that out, it was at that place, Lido. Yeah. And there was that little, like, courtyard area. Yeah, which if uh, most German venues have, like, a weird courtyard area where everybody smokes and there's mm-hmm. skinny wooden tables that everybody drinks around. And it's, uh, everything in Germany is pretty loose. Yeah, so... You know, there's usually dogs running around, people with dreadlocks. <laughs> passports. Passports, stealing. just, yeah, passport thieves. Yeah, just because it's like anyone's allowed backstage, it's all good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Very collective. That was complicated. Jesus. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I was out there. It's actually uh, Greg and I were out there, and or Greg Barnett and I were out there, and mm. I think we were, like, kicking a soccer ball around or something, but I had some music playing, country music playing. Beautiful day. The sun was coming down. And then uh, he left, and Souls Greg came, and he was like, Starts talking to me about Willie Nelson and how he just finished his autobiography, and he was like, "You have to read it." Like it, I, it was so inspirational to him. So when I got back from that tour, um, I got back. I went down to Florida to play Fest. Last time I was down there, um, and we were down there together too. And then um, went up back to New Jersey, and then I directly after I was going straight to Nashville to start recording Two Coyotes and. Uh, Greg kept texting me and being like, where are you at? Like, where can I, like, send this book? And so I think when I got to Nashville, he had finally, like, it was, like, in Nashville for me. And so I actually started reading it when I was starting Two Coyotes and going through this whole kind of transitional thing in music where it was, like, like you always are, where it's, like, what do you want? What don't you want? And it was one of those things where... It was kind of like, it just hit me at that right time. It, it was like I didn't even realize how much I actually needed it. It's almost like I was like going, I, it like was, it was with, that book was like with me as I was starting to re- like reevaluate all these kind of things. That's an incredibly this. romantic stage yeah. for it as well. I mean, you just landed in Nashville. Somebody like Greg from the Soul sends you that book. Most of the book takes place in Nashville. Yeah. Uh, that's why you're kind of evaluating why you're doing what you're doing and you're there writing a record I mean I can't think of a better position to be in while while, while kind of approaching it yeah and then uh, having it and like finishing it after we finished the record and that initial celebration into that kind of like trial era where it's like okay now what are we going to do with the record is anyone going to want to put out the record like um, especially after like putting out the first record a couple of years before that and just being on the road so hard, like thinking like, you know, what are the next steps? And I'd feeling kind of burnout and kind of starting to turn, turn it around and be, be like, 
I don't know. I, I started making a list of like, I kind of hit a wall where it was like, all right, like, at one point I was like, maybe no, maybe no one wants to put the record out, even though everyone involved was so proud of it, you know? Um, and then it came full circle back to what it always does, where it's just like, keep it all in the family, and we put it out on, you know, Kate was like, I think we should put the record out on Chunksaw, and I don't even think I really had to think about it. I was just like, at that point, I didn't want to wait any longer because I hadn't really waited, and I didn't want to get involved in some game where I was like waiting for something that was never going to happen. Yeah, well, I just not wanted to keep moving, yeah. and so yeah. Well, so then we we decided to do that, but in that I had to I started like making a list like, well, what is it that I that I love about my life in music, and what is it what is it that I that I don't love and what am I willing to compromise? And obviously that led to like, what is it that I want Yeah. in the end? And, and it kind of came back to this thing where it was like pretty simple. Um, I wanted to play music and I wanted to make music and I, and I wanted to share music. Um, and a lot of the things that were stressing me out were not roadblocks in, into me doing that. Yeah, I just wasn't looking looking at it in the right perspective, so I, I kind of flipped my script on it, and that book really helped me because it, you know, even though it's like, I think you said like a different scale. Yeah, it's it, like it a, really is about like the struggle of navigating a life in music. One of the best uh, things I took away from the book, the anchor for me, was, besides the incredible anecdotes and like the, the fantastic stories about getting in trouble with the IRS and his creative solution was to release two things called the IRS tapes, and he would give them the masters, and they would. Uh, just received the profits from it in perpetuity or whatever. Uh, I'm not even sure if that was what the deal was, but that's what he did. And he strong-armed them into it by showing up in the tour bus and getting all the employees to come out and sign autographs for them. Uh, the story is about his house burning down. He just runs in and grabs his uh, trigger of the guitar. Yeah. Uh, there's so many incredible stories. But besides that... Well, no, wasn't it... Well, first funny thing is that the uh, one IRS tapes is called IRS Tapes. Who will buy my memories? <laughs> And then I think the, the when his when his house burnt down, didn't he? He grabbed trigger and then another guitar case, and the other guitar case was, of course, just filled with cannabis. <laughs> of course, yeah, yeah. Uh, I love that. But yeah, besides that is uh, that I took away from it hugely was seeing. Once in a while, it gets kind of hard to chase after the answer to the question of why replaying music. Uh, the easy answer is because it feels good and it feels right and that's what I need to do and the benefits are, benefits are there but sometimes it's not easy and oftentimes it's not easy like uh, touring life is is difficult all that we get the uncertainty of um, things like you mentioned getting somebody to put the record out and finding out if you wanted to play that long battle or that game and you realize by reading his autobiography even though it's on a much you know larger scale and in a different environment a different era the reasons are still there. He's really anchored to making the music and sharing it with people. And, it, and that itself is like an altruistic kind of goal. It's in um, his blood. Yeah. You know? And like... Feels right. Yeah. It, it, like, you know, kind of reaching that point where it's just like... Well, I'm going to be making... I'm going to make music. <laughs> I don't know how to not make music. So it's just like... I don't know. I kind of had to just like call bullshit on some of the, some of the things that I was 
chasing after and, you know, like the things that people tell you that you're supposed to do, grappling with like the things that people tell you you're supposed to do, the things that you see other people doing and uh, you're like, well, that's working for them, so we should do this. And kind of realizing that like, if it doesn't feel good, it's never gonna, it's never gonna really pan out in in a long yeah. game, and at least it won't work. You're not gonna be any happier or better off. Yeah, and neither will be the people that neither will the people that rely on you. Yeah, uh, I would say you gotta important. keep you gotta keep song song in the center and all the bullshit at bay. Yeah, totally. And uh, it's kind of like there's so many things like pomp and circumstance, and uh, even like I don't know fashion or, or, or the social scene and all those other things that go along with I don't know why I pick fashion but all those things that go along with um, sure well it's entertainment in that yeah way. it's entertainment you know we're getting up on stage and you you know you consciously decide what you're going to wear you consciously decide uh, sometimes what you're going to say or what kind of version of yourself that you're going to project out uh, into the world and all of those things are part of the entertainment it is like a, a, a little ceremony that you have every time that people come to a show it's like a very sensory not sensory overload, but it's a very sensual kind of thing uh, in the literal sense of the word in that there's lights and it's very loud and there's lots of like um, rubbing up against strangers or you're there, you're drinking, like all that kind of stuff and to strip it down to make it the actual song is, um, it seems like a throwback to what music was before it was recorded. You know, like everybody kind of just hung out in a house and maybe you had an uncle that played the violin or an aunt that played the piano. That's, uh, that's how it was for me when I was younger. I certainly had the radio and stuff, but my live music experience was either at church or uh, at a Catholic church or at um, a grandparent's house. You know, they yeah, yeah. play the tin whistle and stuff. It was all like Irish music and shit. And that's like kind of the core of what the music is, getting your body to respond and your mind to respond to those uh, calculated vibrations and moving air, man. It's a, yeah, it's funny because it's, it's like, you know, like developing some like semblance of like a career. Like when you're, you know, like doing what, we do with music is so so different than that but it's also the reason that we do that and the reason that other people come out and see it because it's about that feeling yeah and you don't like you can't take that away but in a lot of ways i guess what i'm trying to say is that um when you're navigating a life in music the way that we are a lot of times that can like is so far removed from all the other day to day like you got to do this you got to do that and and that's what i really concluded was like i need to get song back in the center yeah and if i can do that and i can focus on that and i can feel that and i can put that into the world and contribute to that long folk tradition in my small little way then I can keep this going for even longer than I already have. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I very much am involved in a, feel like I'm involved in a long game in music, mainly just because music is so important to me that it's at this point in my life, it's like, this, this is just my life, you know? Some oh. people might think it isn't right or wouldn't be good for them but for me it, it works and, and it makes me happy yeah and I think that you're just might be getting started you might just be getting started uh, what you've done with the family shows uh, is I don't want to call it a throwback to what we were just talking about but it is in its essence a different experience than the show that we are used to 
Um, for anybody who's not familiar, the family show. So basically you go to, I'll let you explain it better, uh, but uh, it is a, a unique experience and then it removes a lot of the um, kind of things that we're completely used to when we go to a show and it's been turned into an event all on its own that makes you question what it is exactly. So it's like, you're like, oh yeah, you're there, you see songwriters working with each other, creating an experience that isn't the... I don't want to call it monotonous, but like the monotony of the normal show that you go to. Like usually it's just doors at seven, shows at eight, first band plays for a half hour, 15 minute changeover, next band, next band, and then the headliner, uh, the lights go out, they come out to a walkout track, play a loud set, and then and then leave. And the family show is, is a lot different than that. Yeah, I, uh, well, it was a reaction to that. It was, it was after I was making that mental list of like what I love, what I hate, you know, how can I get back to the center? And I had... But it was also like a lot of the things that we do is based on necessity. Um, so as I did a tour in the Midwest, um, and I was ending in St. Paul, and I had to do some shows getting back, and I was like, well, how does someone that, you know, I was the opener on a fairly small tour, and I was like, well, how does someone like me do this tour that I wanted to do, you know? Uh, and make a situation where I can do some shows on the way back that people will come to and that will kind of pull me back home and, and keep keep the spirit high. And I came up with, I mean, the first thing that I thought of is I need to call some of the people that I've met along the way, and I need to see who would be open to getting together for something that wasn't super revolutionary, but in our, in our community, maybe not happening as much, or maybe in this era, not having as much, which is just—it's kind of like it's kind of like a take on like a songwriters in the round. Yeah, thing. it's kind of the shit that they talk about doing in, uh, for example, in Willie's autobiography. Not, you know, go back to it again. They talk about how they would just meet up and do these kind of shows and play each other yeah. songs. Play, and, play for the sake of playing. Yeah, play for the sake, play um, for the sake of playing. Yeah. Because when, because when you play, you feel good, and when you come together with the people that that you love, you get inspired and. And that's, I don't know, I, di I didn't really know how, like every show that I play, especially the ones that I curate, um, where I have to be more, because I honestly don't really care what happens, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to play, but, uh, you know, when you're in charge of other people and their expectations, then some stress can seep in and you're just like, I always have this feeling at the beginning of the show, like, what if nobody comes? <laughs> and, you know, yep. lately, luckily, it's been... It's been a little bit different. Um, not that there won't be shows in the future that potentially no one that comes no to. <laughs> but, but it's a kind of a funny thing that I've been experiencing at a lot of the shows lately where I, I like, you know, it's like getting close to doors and I'm like, I don't, I don't see anybody. And then we do doors and like a couple people stroll in and I'm like, oh no. And it's not really about me. I'm like, I'm a, I mean, I'll have fun. I'm, I'm happy to be able to play, but uh, I, really worry a lot about what is everyone else having a good time especially when I'm bringing so many people in and yeah uh, one thing that's good about the family shows is yeah so I don't in know essence I, the family show is you are kind of an MC with a guitar kind I mean kind of I, th I think movie. it kind of like it almost becomes this thing where like when it works properly it's like everyone is kind of like telling the story and like yeah, navigating yeah. So the thing but is that everybody's coming up playing one or two songs um, playing songs together collaborating all that stuff yeah yeah and 
And like when he did in Chicago, he brought in Tim from Rise Against and Brendan Kelly played. Yeah. Uh, the Philadelphia one was a literal family show. It was uh, myself, Greg Barnett, Bobby Barnett, Augusta, Augusta, Nika, Anika. Kelly. Yeah. Uh, some of the restoration guys. Yeah, Jeff Riddle. Yep. And that was so fun. It was a seated show at the church, which the church is uh, in Philly, a legendary all ages venue. That's about you can feel like five hundred people or something down there. And it's a DIY spot like none other I've ever seen in, in the, the world, or you know, let alone the country, where it's kind of like a BYO situation. Uh, it's in a basement of a Unitarian church. Um, but it was the first time I'd ever seen seats set up, and everybody was like in the basement of a church singing songs together for a great crowd and doing something that we none of us had ever done before. And it was really um, one really, of my favorite live experiences. Yeah, really really proud of that. And everybody that else show. said the same thing, you know? So yeah, well, great. that's the thing. Is like It's almost like the thing that's been so cool about it is it's not just the magic in the room, everyone that attends. It's like it's everyone, everyone that's performing. I, I kind of hit this wall where I was like, if I could get one thing out of every decision that I make now that I've made so many mistakes along the way and learned what I want and what it, I don't want to do again and... Uh, and though it's completely out of my control, if there's one thing that I could walk away from every endeavor that I take, whether that's recording music or being on the road or whatever, is the feeling of finishing and wanting to do more. Mm-hmm. And so the family shows have been really inspiring in that way because it's been it it it's nice because it it kind of like lifts everybody up. And I believe that when we all come together, we can. We can lift lift everyone's spirit, and especially if we're playing music uh, for our little community, that's something that like really not only brought us all together, but also lifts us all up and takes us a lot of incredible places. Yeah, fuck yeah, love that so much. And you've got the uh, oh yeah, what I want. Another thing I wanted to bring up, we I think both share in this, and it's not something that people like to talk about often, but you get the winter blues as well. Uh, the old uh, they call it seasonal affective disorder, maybe as like the clinical DSM term. Um, not sure how those things work, but, uh, yeah, trying to stave that off this winter as a goal. Uh, it's always been a goal every winter, but I know that we talked before that we were going to try to make that a real, uh, a legit endeavor this this time around. Well, I feel like you say that like every winter, it's like, (laughs) all right, next winter we got to do better. Every winter I say next winter I'm going to move. (laughs) Yeah. Usually. I, uh. Yeah, this year yeah, I'm trying know. to fuck with one of those lights, one of those UV lights, you know? It's, uh, you're, so you're exposed to the ultraviolet light and you're able to create more vitamin D. Yeah, yeah, there. I've heard of these. My grandma has one. Yeah. she's She told me I need to get one. I think she might be right. I don't know. You know? I told her she needs to lighten up and smoke some pot. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't say that to your grandma. Nah, In so many words. <laughs> more, more words. But uh, yeah, I talked to some of my friends. definitely didn't say that to my grandma. <laughs> I talked to some friends in the Pacific Northwest who take uh, sublingual vitamin D. Um, those are all cool. Those all kind of seem like fixes, though. I'm thinking as long as we should just hang out more with, yeah, our, th- with I our think friends the, and with my, our family. My, my philosophy is like using the, using the much like in music, using the resources that I have, the things that I know make me feel good, like playing music um, and getting together with, you know, we have such an incredible community here, and I, I think that, like, I do feel like the winters have gotten a little easier since I came to Philadelphia just because our friend group is so supportive of one another and we do sink into that winter thing where like yeah. we'll disappear for a month but that's my goal this winter is like get 
try to get people together more um, and get myself out of the house more. And so I've actually made a bunch of plans so far to keep things rolling with music, but I'm doing a residency at now I'm going to like plug that. Yeah, plug, the, <laughs> plug that shit. That's what I'm trying to uh, lead into. But there's a great venue in town called Ortliebs um, up in, what is it? Technically is it North Philly. Northern Liberties. Northern Liberties, yeah. Yeah, it's on 3rd Street, I think. Uh, past uh, Gerard or below Gerard. And they, they asked me if I would come and do a residency in the month of January. So every Thursday in the month of January, starting on the 10th um, until the very last day of January, I'm going to be playing a show with, similar to the family shows, but a little bit more like a traditional show just because there was four shows to fill out, but yeah. it's going to be us and another band um, with a more stripped down or solo performance in the middle. Pretty cool. I'm, one uh, of which one you of which will be playing. Yeah, see, on Thursday, January 24th, I'm going to play, and uh, I think we decided that I'm going to play one song and just talk the rest of the time uh, oh. about the song. Yeah, when I don't did know. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you weren't you you weren't there when no, we, we had did the, the, yeah, the I guess, conversation. I guess uh, about your solo, about when, solo. You're, when the band had this the <laughs> conversation about the solo performance. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. When I uh, when I decided when I had this talk to myself and I decided I was just gonna take as much time as I could getting on a stage. Uh, I'm gonna turn it into a, like a, a physical comedy act. Maybe like just, don't. Oh my god. Where I just can't find the I hate cable. To, like, <laughs> I mean, I I just want to. So. so PJ Bond and I played a show the, together the other night. Whom I love. If you guys haven't heard PJ Bond, uh, you can look his music up online. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. He did, and he hasn't he hadn't played in a, in a long time. But we were walking down the street and he said, "I always had this idea for these two <laughs> band, like a two two bands. Do you know what I'm gonna say?" <laughs> no, I don't and he said he me. wanted to call the call it one the the opener is two band Bill. The opener was called Setup, <laughs> and the and the closer was called Breakdown. <laughs> And they literally just got, like, the first set is you just get up and you, like, set everything up and then you do, like, a sound check on everything. Like, <laughs> and then the second set, like, there's, like, a little break and then they come back up and they just tear everything out. <laughs> I bet it's pretty good. I like that. But, yeah, so that's what we can test that out, a solo version. Uh, when mm -hmm. I play that show with you. Maybe I'll play one song. That'll be good. We also have something uh, real fancy that we're cooking up for the spring that we can't necessarily talk to anybody about. We can't announce yet. It's me and you cooking it up. Uh, and I am so, so ex in, uh, inspired and excited. Same. Uh, yeah, I Same. cannot fucking wait to see what, what comes of that. I um, love situations like this where we like say things like that, but we just, uh, yeah, we just can't talk about yeah, it. Yeah, we just know? can't. I mean, I could easily talk about it. I mean, I we know just, what it is. I mean, I know, me too. You know? But hey, we're fuck. just not going to talk about it. We're just it. not going to talk about it. Yeah, it's yeah. going to be very exciting. Uh, but yeah, I'm really more to come. More, way more to come. I'm really excited to uh, uh, stave off the uh, the winter blues with you this time around, and I think that we got a, a good plan in place. Hell yeah, It'll be pretty sweet. I'm stoked. Uh, yeah, I think that's a good note to maybe call it on it. What are you thinking? Yeah. You got anything? Where can where can we hear your music? Uh, you can hear my music wherever music is had, except for uh, big box stores and things. You you. But if you do want to buy my record, then go to a record store and ask them to order it in that can totally happen but you can stream it and buy it on all the places on the internet where you do that absolutely fuck yeah and i'll put links up uh, on the webpage for all the things if you've heard this uh glass kind of chattering around the whole time uh roger taught me how to make batch cocktails before we did this uh we're gonna put the audio of it at the end of this podcast if you want to stick and listen to it it is a batch made manhattan and it's delicious thank you for that Th i mean you made it 
I, it's true. I did make it yeah, yeah. under your guidance. Uh, it's great. I think it's starting to mellow and like taste taste even better. Yeah. If you guys didn't know, uh, Roger is a I'd say expert level cocktail maker with all kinds of expert. Uh, expert. Yeah. I mean, you know, all the like ten thousand hour kind of rule aside, you've been to you've had you have education. Aren't you certified? Uh, yeah. I mean, in a different I've, type yeah. of. Uh, well, you know, when for most uh, people that play music, you got to figure out some sort of hustle that makes makes the music work and. Uh, I bartend when I'm at home, and that's something that I just did. Is like uh, I started doing it because I was working in restaurants and stuff, and I was like, I need to work as little hours so that I can play music more and make as much money as I possibly can, and so that's what I do. Yeah, and you're damn good at it. And that reminded me of another uh, ho- uh, fantastic Roger story about didn't you have a favorite customer who played in Rusted Root? Oh, yeah. <laughs> And dedicated yeah, yeah. the book to you. Yeah, are you written in on the front like the th- acknowledgments? Well, I mean, as far as I know, <laughs> uh, yeah, Jen. I'm not sure what she played, um, but she was a customer of mine at a. It was actually like a, co- a coffee shop, but also a full bar, and we had mate, um, which is something I've been drinking a, a bunch now. Yeah, fuck yeah, it's um, like an earthy tea from uh, South America. Yeah, yeah. really popular. In- a lot of Uruguay. people, yeah, I, I got off the coffee and I'm doing that now, um, but she was writing a book about, from my understanding, like the the medicinal qualities of it. And the, no shit. Like her, like her spiritual journey through her mate, and I was the person that, uh, that served her. it to her, so. Amazing. Uh, from my understanding, she did dedicate, she just did give, at least throw me a little shout out in the Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. That's so badass. <laughs> out to, to your mate. Cheers. Cheers, Roger. Thank you. Oh, and I got to get you on record. Were you, you going to come back and do this again with me? Anytime. Yeah, fuck yeah. <laughs> Love you, Tommy. Cheers, Thank you so much for having me. Oh, yeah. Ooh, all right. Huge thanks to Roger Harvey. You can find him on the internet at XO Roger Harvey. This podcast was recorded at my house in December of 2018. The intro music was done by Pat Breyer. You can find his music online as Queen Jesus. Head over to the YouTube channel to see us fucking around with some Manhattans at the bar, and you can see my terrible video editing skills. Uh, Next week, I'll be releasing another podcast with another friend, exceptionally talented and beautiful individual, Mike Casey of Casey Magic. So long, and in the words of some Canadian who's talking to my friend Ben today, have a tranquil holidays.
What's up, everybody? I am Finn McKenty, host of the Punk Rock NBA podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. My podcast is all about doing what you love for a living, and every week I sit down and talk to people who have done exactly that. For example, musicians like Tommy from Between the Buried Me, Matt from Periphery, Lil Lotus and Shinigami, among many others, photographers, artists, designers, YouTubers like Glenn Fricker and Sarah Dietschy, and I unpack exactly how they got to where they are today with the goal of helping you do the same. So if that sounds cool, you can listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com, and I'll see you there. Well, hey, friends, my name is Zach Lupiton. You may know me from the band Dust Bowl Revival, but I also host a music discovery podcast called The Show on the Road. For the last five seasons, I've been able to dive deep and have intimate chats with folks like the Lumineers, Andy DeFranco, Wolfpack, Keb Moe, Lake Street Dive, Bela Fleck, and more. So guess what? After 150 conversations with some of my favorite songwriters from around the world, we are bringing brand new episodes to the Osiris Network. New interviews and intimate acoustic performances will be coming at you this summer. And which episodes are coming next, you ask? I am Zach Goody, the lead singer for the band Smash Mouth. Our band is called Milky Chance. We are based in Berlin. My name is David Shaw. I sing and write songs with my band, The Revivalists. Trust me, these conversations go some wild places. So subscribe to the show on the road on Osiris, and we'll see you soon. Again.